Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Thanks to all of you for your continued support of the podcast. I hope that we're helping to keep you entertained and educated. We've had some lovely feedback from people so far, so do keep in touch and let us know how you're doing, or whether there is anything you'd like us to try and explore. We are trying hard to release both regular and bonus content on the main feed, but also extra content for our supporters on Patreon. There is quite a community on there, and you can get a number of rewards from audiobook part works at the lowest tier of just a dollar a month, right up to private access to a discussion server with me at the highest level. All of your support is vital for keeping the podcast running, so thanks to all of you. Please do come and join us on Patreon and enjoy all of the extra content. My latest book, Telling the Bees, the Folklore of Rural Craft, is now out. If you pre-ordered a signed copy via the website, I'm hoping that these will ship soon. The hardback books are currently en route to me for signing and then onward sending to you, so they should be with you very soon. The Kindle version is available on Amazon now. Please do review it on there if you buy a copy and enjoy it. After the first two days of release, it was sitting at number 11 in the Folklore and Mythology charts, and it would be great to keep it there. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by buildings archaeologist James Wright for a look at how both builders and residents used to protect their property by means such as ritual marking or burning. And we also touch on the subject of medieval graffiti as well. This episode is a great complement for the previous ones looking at concealed objects for the same purposes with Brian Hoggard and also with Kerry Holbrook right back in season one. All of our back catalogue is, of course, available both on the website and through podcast apps. Now, this interview was recorded early in the global lockdown when there was a lot of pressure on internet bandwidth globally. The quality is not too bad, but there are a couple of short sections in the middle which are not quite of the standard I'd like. Do please excuse these, they're probably no more than a minute. And do enjoy the episode. Hi James, and welcome onto the Folklore Podcast. Hi Mark, really good to uh, finally sit down and have a chat with you. Um, I'm obviously sat up in Nottingham, you're down in Devon, but we seem to have everything connected, so that's really good. Yes, it's uh, it's not working too badly under the circumstances with pretty much the entire world at the moment, I think, trying to use the internet at the same time. We seem to be all right, we'll see how we go from here. Yeah, I suppose there are precedents for um, near-apocalypses in history, uh, you know, <laughs> the 14th century being not a great particularly good time to be alive. Uh, no, no, and uh, obviously uh, tricky times at the moment, but we we won't dwell too much on that because I think people are hearing enough about that from elsewhere, aren't they? So, <laughs> so what we're going to do today is is talk about your particular area of interest, um, which is kind of following on from a previous podcast uh, where we had Brian Hoggard on talking about um, uh, concealed objects and protection of property. Um, and I know your area of interest is is kind of a long, similar but slightly different line. So, so let's just start by by covering a little bit of ground to say who you are and and what you do, what your particular areas of interest are. So, I'm a, a buildings archaeologist and an architectural historian. I've been knocking around the heritage world for about twenty years or so now, um, and I've always tried to maintain a very close interest in the medieval and the early modern period, uh, in particular 
big, solid, high-status castles and great houses have been my thing. I have worked in lots of other areas of, of, uh, of historic buildings, from hospitals to churches to well houses to all sorts of little oddities and, and, and other big civic buildings as well. But I've always tried to come down to researching castles and great houses. I think I've got the bug for that, really. Firstly, as a child, when mum and dad and uncles and aunties and grandparents would take me out during the day, and, you know, we, we'd end up sort of looking at places like Conwy Castle or Carnarvon or Harlech when we drove out to Wales or, or more locally to Staffordshire at Stafford Castle or the like. And then when I went to university at Nottingham, I encountered a chap called Philip Dixon, who's still around. Uh, he's, a, he's a great buildings archaeologist. He was really one of the, the forefronts of people who invented the discipline, really. Um, and it, again, his principal interest was castles and great houses too. So really, between my family and Philip, I had no choice. My, my life was decided for me. <laughs> and you spend quite a lot of time now in those buildings, don't you? I know you've been working quite closely with the National Trust, for example, recently. Yeah, um, I've been working with the National Trust on and off since about 2012. Um, I ran the historic building recording for the Trust when I was at the Museum of London Archaeology um, between 2012 and 2016 down at Knoll, uh, just outside Sevenoaks in Kent. Um, that was a, a huge, impossibly complex medieval palace starts in the 15th century and then it seemed to be remodelled every couple of years uh, uh, all the way through. So it's an incredibly complex um, uh, building and that work is still ongoing. I'm still doing bits and pieces for the trust down there as a freelancer now. Um, and yes, more recently as well, um, I, I, I moved back to Nottingham from London in 2016 and I've been doing my PhD on Tattershall Castle in Lincolnshire, which is an entirely different building, but goes up at about the same time that Knoll starts in the 1440s, built of brick. It's a big powerhouse statement of prestige and status for the Lord Treasurer of England, Ralph Cromwell. Um, and, you know, these, these sort of National Trust buildings and National Trust projects are an incredible luxury in many uh, respects because you're given huge amounts of time and unparalleled access to every single space in them so it's an absolute joy to work for the trust and it's amazing isn't it what you find hidden in a lot of these properties uh, and that's kind of what we want to focus on on now are the kind of some of these these hidden secrets within these buildings um as i say we've spoken before about um ritual protection of buildings uh, and we've looked at concealed objects um you know skulls cats coins these sorts of things now you're specifically interested more in the markings on the buildings rather than the um, objects that are concealed themselves. So can you explain a little bit about the different types of ritual marking that people used to use as a kind of supernatural protection against evil for their buildings? I, I certainly can. But if I can just start off by giving a little bit of context for why I might have been looking at these odd markings on buildings, um, that will sort of seed into an explanation of what they actually are. Um, the discipline of buildings archaeology only really began in the 1980s and 90s, and that was looking forensically at historic buildings as an archaeologist would, and kind of breaking down the context, understanding the phasing, and scientifically and also stylistically dating these structures. It was actually quite a, 
innate innovation within the subject of archaeology. And then even later has been this aspect where we are starting to look at what is actually scratched and inscribed on the walls of these buildings. And that's really something that's only really taken off in the last five or ten years. So one thing to really hammer home is that this discipline that I've somehow stumbled into and then this sort of niche subject within that discipline is really quite new, really quite modern. And so we're still finding our way through it, and it's still quite a fresh subject. Um, I'm sure many people are very familiar with the concept of stonemason's marks, which are put on buildings as part of the construction process, not in the same way that carpenters do, where they're numerically marking pieces of timber to ensure that they slot together in the correct way. Stonemasons are leaving uh, incised marks on the buildings basically as a system of monitoring productivity. So you see these quite arcane-looking symbols on the walls, usually cut with maybe two to eight strokes of a chisel. They can sometimes be quite geometrical in in, in, in um, shape. And these have been recorded for quite a long period of time. But what had been completely missed in the literature, in the research, in the fieldwork, had been in more informal historic graffiti. And that's something which has only recently been looked at in any great detail. There's, there's obviously people like myself, um, people like Natalie Cohen at the National Trust, and obviously Matthew Champion, who wrote the book on medieval graffiti in specifically churches, which is something else I'm interested in. Um, so there's, there's a small group of us out there who are nerding away about graffiti, but it, it, it is so new. Uh, and an aspect of that graffiti has been that, probably about 25 to 35% of all graffiti actually relates to the ritual protection of historic buildings. And what are people using there? Uh, you say this kind of quarter of graffiti perhaps is used for protection. Um, now, I mean, we're quite familiar, aren't we, I suppose, with a lot of uh, pieces of medieval graffiti. They're, they're, they're not hugely different to the kind of modern graffiti that we see in many ways. But what specifically are people marking buildings with? So they're using easily accessible tools um, to begin with. A lot, most of this graffiti is incised. Um, some of it can be quite beautiful too, in many respects. Um, they might be using knife blades or, or sharpened nails or possibly shears. Uh, compasses probably come into the, the to play as well, although they're quite a high-status um, object, only really owned by stonemasons and carpenters. And also, speaking of carpenters, they have uh, something called a raised knife for marking up timber as well, and that seems to be deployed as well. It looks a little bit like a hoof pick, and it leaves a very characteristic half-round profile. And what they're doing with these tools is applying them to the walls and actually scratching into primarily stone and timber, sometimes brick, but not that often. And we can find it right the way through the medieval period, and we can find it in the, into the early modern period, and in fact beyond, uh, well into the Enlightenment, and even into the modern age, or just into the modern age. A lot of the earlier stuff that's of a ritual nature tends to be quite Christian in origin. There tends to be a certain pseudo-theology to it. So one of the more characteristic uh, inscriptions that we find on the walls is the five-pointed star, the pentagram, uh, which nowadays has a, an association with black masses and Satanism and black metal bands and the like, but that's really a 
late 19th century conceit. This is a very, very old symbol, which can be found in a medieval context. For example, it's referred to at great length in the late medieval poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, Gawain goes off on his quest from Camelot to fight the Green Knight. He's got his physical armour on to protect him on the quest, but he's also spiritually protecting himself by daubing himself in pentagrams, for example. And it's a symbol of of, of, of white magic. It's, it, it's a good symbol. It has Christian overtones. And as a result of it being there in the more um, established artistic and literary culture as a as a symbol uh, a pseudo theological symbol it also translates down to ordinary people's use of it and we find it carved in our castles our great houses and our churches as a protective symbol there's there's some quite good reasoning why uh, people wanted to use that so it's seen as representative of, of many things but one of the things it's representative of in the medieval mind is the five wounds of christ um, there also seems to be an idea that, that uh, demons and evil spirits that people are trying to protect their houses from uh, were not maybe the brightest sparks on the uh, on on the on, on either the, the 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 astral planes, the spiritual world, or even in this world as well. And so there's this idea uh, that's there in the contemporary mind that if a spirit finds a line, it wants to get to the end of that line, and if you create an endless line, which of course a pentagram is. The demon is, in a sense, trapped to the wall, spinning for all time. Um, so, this, again, it's it's something that's there in the established medieval and early modern uh, um, symbolism, but it's 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 filtered down right the way through the populace to ordinary people carving on their walls to, to deal with the problem, the perceived problem of evil. But presumably, not all of the symbolism that you find on these buildings is necessarily Christian in origin. Um, it's, there seems to be an established belief that was very much encouraged by 18th and 19th century anthropology and folklorists that there is a continuity of pagan beliefs all the way through from the Bronze Age, Iron Age, through the Roman period, through the Saxon period and into the medieval church. When you actually get down to it, um, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of continuity at all. And so some of these symbols that we find on the walls, such as, for example, the hex foil, sometimes called the daisy wheel, the six-pointed petal within a, um, a design, within a, a, a wider circle. It's a very, very common graffiti uh, design. That is found in Northern European medieval and early modern context scribed onto the walls with compasses or maybe shears um but at the same time it is found in prehistory too it's found well into uh, the classical world for example but what it meant to people say in fifth century classical greece doesn't mean that it meant exactly the same thing to people two thousand years later in 15th century England, and that symbols do change their interpretation over time. And a good example of this might be the, the more characteristic um, foliate heads, formal carvings, sometimes called the green man. Um, they are certainly found in 
ancient Roman context where they seem to have a connection with uh, the dead, uh, possibly connected to rebirth. But then when they spring up again in the medieval world, something completely different is occurring. And they seem to there have a connection to the idea and concept of, of sin and evil and being a warning, a moral warning, which is something completely different to what the Romans were doing. And I think some of the graffiti that we're finding as well, although things like the, the daisy wheels are found in the ancient pagan world, by the time they pop up again in, medi in the medieval period, because they are quite simple, they are quite easy to create, they mean something entirely different. And in this context, again, we're probably looking at ritual protection, this idea of the endless line, um, which is analogous, again, with what we were talking about a moment ago regarding um, pentagrams. Um, interestingly, they are also used by stonemasons and carpenters in terms of them being geometrical aids, because you can actually set out a building or a bit of a building using interlocking circles to create your proportions so there's many many ways of looking at these uh, inscriptions and we have to take each one in and of itself and we have to try and analyze whether it's been cut informally as part of ritual protection whether it's been cut perhaps as a teaching aid for a, a stonemason or a carpenter uh, or in fact as part of the formal setting out process or in fact at a later period has it been done by a bored schoolboy or schoolgirl <laughs> That's a really interesting um, point. So we have to be quite careful, and interpretation is key. Yes, yes, and that's a really interesting Go point, on. isn't it? I was, I was just wondering, how do we know that these marks are used for ritual protection? What evidence do we have that backs up that interpretation of the symbols? Well, I think a lot of this, again, comes down to context. Um, one thing to make abundantly clear is very, very, very little, in fact, almost none of this is actually written down in the historical record. And I know for a lot of historians, this has given them cause to pause and consider whether or not we're reading too much into this situation. But if we approach this archaeologically, we can maybe try and fill in some of the gaps. Certainly, we can look around in artistic representations of historic buildings, and you can actually see graffiti included in artistry, uh, in paintings of the late medieval and early modern period. And some of the things that we can see in some of those paintings are actually compass-drawn circles. For example, they're quite commonly seen in and around fireplaces, on smoke hoods, that kind of thing. Um, and so if we're seeing them in dated paintings of the period, when we actually come to look at actual buildings from that period and we find these circles in those locations, there seems to be a close relationship. So one of the things that we're noticing is that these ritual markings do tend to cluster around portals into buildings. By portals, I mean anywhere where there's a gap. Um, so doors, windows, fireplaces are the, the most um, commonly associated locations for these ritual markings, in particular the pentagrams and the, uh, and the, and the compass-drawn circles, along with uh, a whole sequence of other marks as well. And they really, really cluster. And this is where the statistical modelling of um, graffiti comes it comes to be key, really, this archaeological approach, looking at the context of things. Um, so if we look at where they actually cluster, then we can start to say, well, why might they be clustering around the portals to buildings? 
And then if we start looking at some of the literature of the period, for example, the very famous passage from the uh, James VI of Scotland's uh, demonology, written originally in 1597 and then reprinted when he came to England to become James I of England, um, there's a very famous passage in that in which he describes how witches and evil spirits enter a building. And it describes um, in minute detail that they pass wherever there's a draft, wherever the air flows. And of course, that is these portals into buildings. And even though you can shut your door or shutter up your windows, there's always going to be a draft. And this seemed to cause a tension point and anxiety uh, in people's minds about this is how evil spirits and witches and demons are actually getting into our buildings. And of course, although you can shutter up or close your door or window, you can never close up your fireplace. And again, this is where we're finding huge numbers of these markings. Yeah, and that kind of fits in, doesn't it, with the concealed objects as well, which are often found in chimneys, for example. Yes, and if I can give you a very, very specific example of that from mm -hmm. one of the large buildings that I've been working on, I mentioned before, um, Knoll, the 15th century um, great house, Archbishop's Palace in Kent, um, starts in the 15th century, but is intensively remodelled in the opening years of the 17th century. Uh, and there's a tower there called the King's Tower, which was being um, remodelled as potential royal accommodation uh, in 1606. And um, there's a fireplace on the second floor of that, which has a beam in front of it. It's actually below the floor this beam is. It's underneath the floorboards. And it's absolutely dripping in these ritual markings, absolutely covered in them, cut there by carpenters. Um, and these date to the uh, early years of the 17th century, but up the chimney as well, there is also uh, some mid-17th century concealed artefacts which were recovered in the, uh, I think, in the 1960s. Uh, and again, it's the shoes that I know Brian Hoggard talked about on your podcast previously, which were thrust up there. And shoes are nice and dateable, and they dated to the middle years of the 17th century, somewhere around the time of the English Civil War. So you're getting layers of protection, um, different types of protection in these buildings. And, of course, over slightly differing periods of time across maybe a 50-year um, difference. So you've got not just ritual markings, but also concealed artifacts from about, 1605, 6, all the way through to maybe 1650, 1670, somewhere like that. So there's a, a big time span here that we're dealing with. So I, I wonder if it's possible to pin down where these ritual markings are adopted um, in our own history as a protective element. So do we know what are the probable earliest examples and at the other end of the scale, what are the, what are the latest ones? Dating these things can be problematic. Um, it's certainly the case that in the 11th, 12th and earlier 13th century, but particularly in the 12th century, many of these ritual markings were actually part of established ecclesiastical carving traditions so the the hex foil the, the daisy wheel for example can be found in many many churches and is often found in close association um, with the tympanum um, the carved panel over porch doors so again this association between a portal into a building uh, and this particular symbol and that is there at places like Hawksworth in Nottinghamshire, um, which has a tympanum uh, featuring the crucifixion. But around the crucifixion are, are dozens 
of carved um, daisy wheels. So we can see that it's, it's adopted in formal Christianity, but it seems to fall away somewhere in the 12th into the 13th century. And it's no longer really used very commonly. Um, but what we do find is that we get examples from the later medieval period where this design is being informally inscribed on the buildings of, um, uh, of, of churches, castles, uh, great houses. It's more difficult to date in the context of castles and great houses. But when you actually look at churches and cathedrals and monasteries and chapels, we have something called the Reformation, which comes along in the middle of the 16th century. And what happens, particularly during uh, the reign of Elizabeth, is that these buildings are whitewashed. And if we've got medieval markings, uh, which are maybe cut there in the 15th or early 16th century, when the Reformation comes along, the lime wash, where these these highly painted buildings are covered over in, in plain white lime wash, actually sinks into those earlier inscriptions. And in those contexts, we can actually start to assign specific dates to the medieval period uh, to them because we can actually physically, archaeologically see the lime wash of the later 16th century vestigially remaining within those, um, within those inscriptions. So we can start to date some of these things. Um, but it is quite difficult to pin them down accurately. We got very, very lucky with this at Knoll, and this was really a once-in-a-career um, identification. But we were able to, to say with great accuracy that these markings were actually cut during the construction process. Um, they were cut using the carpenter's raised knife, um, that they were um, uh, underneath the floor, so they were essentially in a sealed context. Uh, and that also they were found in association with some burn marks. So we can talk about taper burn marks and what they mean in, in a little moment. Um, but it's worth saying that these burn marks were running horizontally and that the only time that you could apply a taper to a piece of timber and it would leave a horizontal mark is when that beam is upright and it's in the framing yard. So, again, this is pre-planned ritual protection by carpenters and we were able to date that very closely using tree ring dating the timber itself was uh, felled in the winter of 1605 and then documentary accounts tell us that it was being laid in the spring and the summer of 1606 so there we were able to date it very very closely to a matter of a few months and that there was some um, some circumstantial evidence which pointed to this happening in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot, which of course was pinned upon Catholics in league with Satan and witches and the like. Um, and so that we're seeing a royal building, which is, oh, sorry, not a royal building, but a um, aristocratic building, which is being constructed for royal accommodation when the king came on progress. It's actually part of the royal suite. So we're seeing carpenters essentially going into overdrive to protect the monarch in the aftermath of a terrorist incident which had been blamed on Catholics in league with the devil. So again, it's, 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 it's unusual to be able to pin down the dating of these things so closely. At the later end of things, probably the latest datable ritual mark that I've been able to identify is from the 1870s. And again, that was at Knoll. That was in the, uh, the old laundry there in a roof structure, which was um, dated to the 1870s. And what's the thinking behind these uh, ritual burn marks? I, mean, I know they're quite common in a lot of buildings, um, in in the way that the 
pentagram, for example, is a continuous line to trap a, a demon. Uh, what's the thinking behind the ritual burning of a property? It depends where you go and what you read. So if you go up to Haddon Hall in Derbyshire, very, very famous building used in lots of films, most notably The Princess Bride, one of the greatest films ever made. <laughs> um, if you go into the kitchens there, there's absolutely hundreds of these tear-shaped burn marks, which are maybe anything from a few millimetres in height all the way to a few inches in height. Um, and you can see them all over the walls of the, uh, the, the timber framing in the kitchen um, at Haddon. But the, um, the people there have interpreted them as being unattended lamps or, or rush lights, which have got out of hand and burnt the building slightly. Um, and that's traditionally how they've been interpreted. Um, I can think of in, uh, similar um, interpretation at the Tudor House in Southampton as well. And for decades, that was taken as red, really, until some really, really interesting experimental archaeology was done by English Heritage. Um, John D um, Dean and Nick Hill um, of English Heritage did some brilliant um, experimental work where they tried to recreate these tear-shaped burn marks, and they found that they couldn't do it accidentally. If they just left rush lights or tapers unattended, it didn't create this very, very typical tear-shaped mark. It just created a sort of amorphous, sooty blob, or it created a, a linear line. It didn't cause this, um, this tear shape. And they found through trial and error that the only way that you can recreate a tear-shaped burn mark is if you hold your taper for a very prolonged period of time, between about 5 and 15, 20 minutes, at a very particular angle of about 45 degrees. You have to hold it very, very steady. But after a few minutes, there becomes a, a, a sooty, charred buildup, and you actually have to scrape that out with a knife in order to be able to continue the burn. So that these burn marks are an intensely deliberate activity. And that absolutely revolutionized how people started to look at these things. And then again, by statistically modeling where we were finding these things, all sorts of interesting things started to happen. And again, a lot of them are found in association with windows, doors, and fireplaces. Um, it's quite common, for example, to find burn marks dead center on timber lintels, for example. There's a really, really good example of that that everybody can go and look at at the Fighting Cox pub in St. Albans, where there's a single burn mark placed dead center in the lintel. So firstly, we can say that these things are deliberate creations, that they're not accidental um, damage to a building. And then we must start thinking, well, what is their function? And again, nothing is written down, so we have to look at these things archaeologically. Um, and we have to start looking at the world that people are living in. And they're absolutely terrified about the conflagration of buildings. Um, if you're living in a timber-framed environment with lots of wood and thatch, um, you, you're, you're liable to experience the burning of, a, of your property, um, whether by accident or by design. Of course, the Great Fire of London is the, the, the classic case of this. Um, and it could be that they're using a, an early iteration of the idea of inoculation, i.e. if you burn your building a little bit, then it won't burn down in its entirety. Um, in the same way that Brian Hoggard has speculated that it might be um, 
related to the ritual death. You, you break something um, by, in this case, burning it, and then you send it into a different plane of existence where it can fight the good fight for you. And there's lots of uh, examples of uh, artistic works or, or folk tales where, in particular, witches are seen as the sort of people who would deliberately set fire to people's houses. There's lots of illustrations showing witches um, mucking around near people's um, chimneys, for example, and setting fire to their buildings. So again, we might be seeing uh, residual evidence archaeologically of, of those traditions um, that people were afraid of malignant fire setting. I think there's probably more to it than that, in that not all of these marks are related to ritual protection. I think sometimes we might be seeing purification of spaces. Um, there's a uh, what was probably an early modern prison cell at the Queen's House at the Tower of London. Um, it's an unlit space, only one door in and one way out. It's adjacent to the cell where Sir Thomas More was imprisoned before his execution. And the doorway around that has a huge number of burn marks on it, 15, 20 examples. Um, this is also the building where Guy Fawkes was interrogated. So it's got quite a grim reputation. And I do wonder in that instance whether these burn marks, they could be there as, as protection, but equally they might be there to purify the space after something particularly unpleasant had occurred in there. Equally, they could represent the prayers of the incarcerated. So there's lots of different ways of looking at this. I also suspect that there might be a healing aspect to burn marks too. But again, it's always down to a case-by-case -case, um, situation. So the burn marks, for example, in the steward's chamber at Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire, there's a dense distribution of them, and they're nowhere near a portal into the building. I just wonder if they were above the bed that used to sit in that room. So these ritual markings are being laid down over quite a long period of time, and and there's a, a diverse range of them with the hexafoils and the daisy wheels and this ritual burning uh, of, of beams and so on. Now... Protection of buildings is obviously found all over the world. It's not just something that's specific to us here in the UK, for example. Um, do we find the same symbols being used in other countries as are used here? So, yeah, we do, actually. Um, they certainly seem to be a pan-European tradition. But again, they might mean slightly different things to different cultures within that Christian-European tradition. Um, so, for example... In the Mediterranean, the daisy wheel seems to be very much of a sun symbol. Um, there's, there's also the aspect that it might be related to um, the flower of life as well, which I think is actually what it's called in the Balkans region. They actually refer to it as the flower of life. Um, so there seems to be slightly different interpretations of it, although it is quite difficult to work out those interpretations because we do not have the written culture in this country, for example, um, we also are finding um, burn marks, certainly in Northern Europe, and there's, there's plenty of examples from France and Belgium and the Low Countries too. But the really interesting thing is what happens when from Europe start travelling. So there's huge amounts of, of both um, ordinary graffiti and also ritual graffiti to be found in Crusader castles, for example. And the crack de Chevalier uh, in Syria has uh, vast numbers of um, ritual protection graffiti, presumably put there by crusading soldiers 
in the 12th and 13th centuries prior to the capture of the Krakow Chevalier by the Muslim forces. So we've got quite a tight dating there um, in, the, in, the, in the high medieval ages for this graffiti. But at a later period as well, in the early modern period, uh, when we start to see uh, colonies founded in initially North America, but eventually into the 18th century and 19th century in Australia, we're also seeing these symbols transported across oceans as well. So that European Christian culture is quite tenacious. It hangs on for a very long period of time, and also it travels as well. So we're seeing it not just indigenously, but also across the countries uh, as people move. Now, we've covered the, some of the types of building that you're uh, specifically interested in looking at already, so uh, castles uh, and the larger medieval houses. But if we think about the more mundane medieval buildings, um, you know, the peasantry, the, the ordinary townhouses and, and village dwellings, for example, are they being marked in the same way? Yes. They certainly are. Uh, it seems to be something that is percolating downwards from these established um, ecclesiastical symbols that are used in the earlier medieval period, and then it passed down through society. And the interesting thing that we can see, again, by modelling the spaces uh, and, and the locations where these marks are found, is that it does seem to be something which is attractive to all sectors of society. So I've already described how artisans working in the 17th century at Knoll are marking up timbers uh, using their own craft raised knives. Um, we can see these things uh, maybe a century earlier, 70, 80 years earlier, in the roof structures of the Queen's House at the Tower of London, which are storage spaces, possibly some low-status residential areas. And this is probably the servants. Uh, of the house in the 16th and 17th centuries who are also marking up the building too. Um, so we're seeing, you know, servants and artisans, working class, middle class notionally, um, marking up their buildings. But equally, we can go and look at Matt Beresford's research at Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire, uh, where he has found ritual protection graffiti, uh, both in the form of paper burn marks on the shuttering of William Cavendish, the Duke of Newcastle's private bedchamber. Um, and then he's also gone into the, the latrines um, off this bedchamber and found compass-drawn designs there too. And realistically, you know, are we looking at something which either Cavendish has been doing himself or servants with access to that space have been doing within it, but they've presumably not been getting into trouble. So it seems to be something which is there at all sectors of society from these big posh houses. Well, if we just take a big posh house, it could be done by a servant, it could be done by a builder, or just conceivably, it could also be done by the patron, the aristocrat who lives there too. So finally, turning our attention away from the building specifically and, and looking more at the people that are involved here so that's both the artisan crafts people and the ordinary village dwellers for example what can this tell us about the interaction of these superstitions with the people that are undertaking them there's kind of social history element if you like so what it's telling is is that there is a pervasive fear of evil that crosses all levels of society and that 
we're living in a almost exclusively Christian society, and those Christian moral warnings about evil and the threat of evil, and in particular into the 16th and 17th century, the idea that there are witches in league with Satan's forces is prevalent across society. And so we're seeing this Christian world in living terror of the incarnate threat of evil stalking the land. Satan's there and he's coming to get you, ultimately. You've got to do something to protect yourself. Um, we can certainly see this, again, even at the top end of society, um, with um, the Duke of Rutland at Beaver Castle in Leicestershire, or, or just inside Rutland, I can't remember which of the two is in, but Beaver Castle, uh, where he, he actually accuses two servants at the property of um, trying to kill, and in fact killing, two of his children with witchcraft. So, you know, this is something which is, everybody is, 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 is terrorised by the, in their minds, the very real perception of evil in the land. And I think what we're seeing is these tensions and anxieties, these, these fears uh, of evil coming out in a physical format through the markings on the buildings. And what, are these fears that are being propagated by particular sections of society are these fears coming directly from the church or directly from authority or or is this just as you say a pervasive fear both to be honest it's certainly helped along um, by social factors so when uh, historians of witchcraft have started to model witch accusations in the legal courts what they found is that the, the vast majority of cases um, are uh, in the 16th and the uh, earlier 17th century, running through to about the 1680s. It, it's a real high point of the witch craze. Uh, and they tend to find that it's people who are slightly higher up in society, blaming people who are a bit more marginalised, in particular, of course, teenage girls and very, very elderly single women, um, for the problems in society. And that they, they tend to try and scapegoat people who they perceive as, as witches who have hexed them that have caused the problems that they're experiencing in life. And this seems to be quite a common aspect in societies which are under huge societal, economic, religious pressures. So if we consider the period of about 1530 to about 1630, there's a doubling of the population in this country. Um, it's also the period where we're seeing enclosures of open land. Um, so people are losing their livelihood. They're losing their access to food. They're moving into urban environments, which creates a, a, a spatial tension and anxiety. And there's a genuine lack of food at just exactly the same time. But there's huge economic pressures as well. So um, wages are being driven down during this period as well. And all of these problems are somewhat compacted by the tremendous changes to the church as well from in the early 16th century the catholic church is still reigning supreme the you get the, the reformation occurring of course mary takes it back to um catholicism in the mid 1550s and then again we, we get the move back to uh, protestantism under elizabeth and beyond so all of these problems in society are, are, are effectively being regurgitated through the perceived threat of evil. They're, they're, rather than looking at 
the actual systems which are creating these problems, people are turning in upon themselves uh, instead. And I have to say, it's actually quite a similar phenomenon to what we've been experiencing in the first couple of decades of this century, uh, with huge societal pressures, many of which are analogous to what's been going on in the 16th and 17th centuries as well, this expansion of the gap between rich and poor, uh, the perceived um, population issues um, surrounding immigration. And what people have been doing in the modern era is blaming immigrants or Muslims or benefit scroungers or, again, liminal, marginalized people. Um, and it's, it's, it's very much the same system that was going on in the 16th or 17th centuries. And ultimately, this, this was extremely widespread. And as I said before, it's being experienced at all levels of society. And people are, are living in genuine terror. And they're, they're looking out for themselves. They're trying to protect themselves from these perceived threats. So do you think there's a kind of modern equivalent now to the ritual markings of buildings that people are using to protect themselves from these same perceived evils? I think that the, the idea of the modern equivalent very much comes down to scapegoating. So we're scapegoating liminal, marginalised people for the problems that are actually being caused by capitalist society um, rather than dealing with the problems. But it is slightly interesting to go and look at John Billingsley's research, um, which he talked about at the last Hidden Charms conference, where he was referring to post-communist um, Albania, where they were, instead of uh, planting kind of scarecrow-like features in their gardens, as they used to do to drive away evil spirits, they're now rather distressingly hanging teddy bears off the walls uh, and balconies of their flats. And that only seemed to happen. Um, this century. Um, so again, yeah, there probably are analogous um, rituals going on, but it'll probably be for future archaeologists to fully unpick and unpack those, uh, those phenomena. And that's a very timely mention on which to finish because the last piece of content that went out on the Folklore podcast feed that wasn't an actual episode, as uh, I've said before, we're trying to put out extra content during this time just to keep people entertained while they're uh, isolated at home. Uh, And the last thing that did go out was that talk of John Billingsley's on Albanian ritual protection. So if anybody hasn't yet had a chance to listen to that content, um, now would be a really good time to do it. And that will tie in very nicely with with what we've just been talking about uh james thank you so much for coming on uh, and discussing your work and your research it's uh, a really fascinating area i think and this this whole period of our history and the superstitions that go along with it um have are, are rich in in folklore and, and symbolism and tradition i think did we cover everything that you think sums that up pretty well yeah i'm a up to, uh, yeah i think i think we did i think we did we, we managed to look at the uh, aspects of all levels of society but through the focus of, of sometimes individual buildings and lots of people packed into these buildings together which must have caused tension and anxiety in and of itself in the 17th century apparently there was about 130 people living at Knoll so you can imagine there was lots of different opinions lots of uh, 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 neuroses going on there and, and I think we can see it coming out on the walls quite literally <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, if people want to learn more about uh, this area, have you got any suggested places that they should go and look for further research? Well, I think we're in a, in a bit of a golden age of research at the moment. I mentioned that this is still quite a new uh, subject, um, so there is a limited amount um, published on it, but they, um, people could certainly do 
um, well looking at Matthew Champion's work, at uh, Brian Hoddard's work. Um, I've slung the odd article out there and given lots and lots of lectures on the subject, some of which are available online too. So there's my lecture on um, uh, the ritual protecting marks relating to the gunpowder plot at Knoll is available um, via the Gresham College website. And equally, my presentation on both Knoll and the Tower of London marks is available uh, as a download um, and also as a video presentation through the Hidden Charms um, conference too. And uh, I think everyone should come to the next Hidden Charms conference, which has been um, postponed until November of 2020, where I'll actually be talking about some aspects looking at uh, uh, high-status uh, imagery, which, which led to um, graffiti inscriptions um, at that conference. So hopefully I'll see lots of familiar faces and meet lots of new people to talk about this subject with there. That would be great. And of course, that conference, uh, as I think we mentioned before, is being held in Chester this year. So if you're in the UK and you can get to Chester uh, in November, then um, that would be a really good conference to get to. James, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your work. It's been uh, a fascinating discussion and I hope we can catch up again soon. Thank you. My thanks to James for coming on to discuss his work. Do take a look at his articles and other work online. We continue to put out bonus folk horror storytelling content between episodes for a little while longer. Once our Solemn Veil game finishes, there is another one to come in a similar vein, and I hope you're still enjoying these. In the next normal episode of the podcast, I'll be chatting to Swedish illustrator Johan Egerkrantz about his research, writing and illustration of Swedish mythological creatures, and in particular, his book Vasen. I hope you can join me for that, and maybe on our Patreon page in the meantime. Thanks for listening. See you next time.